dream. And in my dream, I was staying at these friends' place, and I must have, in my dream, got some rich friends because it was an amazing place. And uh, this house, uh, I was staying with them. We kind of wrapped up for the evening. It was time to go to bed in my dream. Uh, so I'm getting ready for bed in my dream to go to bed in my dream. Um, <laughs> it's getting very Inception-like. And then Leonardo DiCaprio came out. No, no, no. no so, um, and what happened was, as I got into this room, which was this lovely kind of spare guest room in the house, I, I, I got saved. And this was... Um, well, there's something not quite right about this place and this house and this situation that I was in, but I couldn't quite put my finger on it. I wonder if you've had that feeling in a dream or in real life. Anyways, I started to fall asleep. I started to drift off into sleep. I got this overwhelming feeling of remembering something that I'd forgotten to do, something cataclysmically important, something like the whole the whole world was waiting for me to do and only I could do and I had forgotten to do it. Something that would ruin my whole week. Something so important that I neglected to do. And so I sat all upright in my dream but also in real life. Right? Scrambled for my clothes on the floor realising it was 2 o'clock in the morning but I had to do this thing. This thing that is so important and if I don't do it, no one will do it. So I'm grabbing my clothes, I'm putting on my shirt backwards, I'm running out the door and I get to my door and I realise I've got no idea what that thing was. Because it was a dream. But now I'm awake, for real. And as I sat there, my heart pounding, I had this really crazy sensation of realising that I'd forgotten something but having no way of remembering what it was. And that's how I started this day. Um, I wonder if, um, the reason, I mean, I think, any psych students here, is this kind of a bad, we'll talk about that later, uh, what's going on there. Um, I think the thing is because I often really do forget things. I'm quite a forgetful person uh, and I do often have that kind of bolt upright moment in real life that I've forgotten something very important. Um, I actually, so much so, I've actually started collecting this is a bit weird, but wait a minute. I started collecting kind of little um, notes to myself. So whenever I forget something really important or someone else forgets something really, like one of my friends does this, I take note of the circumstances so I don't do it again. And I've, I've, I brought a couple of these notes with me. Um, see if you can re- re- kind of connect with any of these. Is having a conversation about how bad it is when you forget someone's birthday, don't forget to check on Facebook to see if it is, in fact, that person's birthday. <laughs> that's important. Um, that's helpful. Um, oh, this is, this is very important. This actually happened to a friend. Of, it was very funny to watch. Uh, when about to tell a mildly humorous story to a friend about something that happened to you, don't forget to ask yourself, did that actually happen to me? Or did that happen to them? Particularly if the reason why it's so hilarious is because it's very self-deprecating. It doesn't, doesn't work that, that well. Oh, this, this one's happened, yeah. this happened to me. I, some of you know I play piano a little bit. And um, when we uh, were at Ancon, that's right, Ancon 05, and I learnt this lesson in a band. Uh, when playing keyboard at an event held indoors but near bushland, that's the important factor, <laughs> don't forget when you come in in the morning to check for any little baby snakes which may have made their home inside your amplifier before you start rocking out and making noise in that amplifier. They get really grumpy. Really good. I've I've just got one more. I've got one more. When you decide, this is a true story. It didn't happen to me. It happened to someone else, but it's a true story. When you decide to go see a three-hour-long movie 
at 10 a.m. on a Saturday morning, as you're turning your phone off so nobody can disturb you, don't forget to check your diary to see if you have anything important that you need to be doing at 11 a.m., like a wedding (laughs) in which you have a reasonably important role, like you're the minister marrying the couple. (laughs) I can reliably report that when you do turn on your phone, you're going to have a lot of missed calls. (laughs) A lot of missed calls. It's a terrible feeling. It's a really terrible feeling. A really... It's shock, horror. It happened. Um, It's a really terrible feeling, isn't it, when you you realise that you forgot something. And even worse, when you actually can't for the life of you remember what that thing was. That feeling that you've forgotten something but you don't quite know what it is. And actually, this this story today is about an upstanding religious man, a young man, someone who everyone admired as being uh, faithful to God in, in all the religious activities and upstanding member of the community. He has this overwhelming sense that though he doesn't know what it is, he's forgotten something. He has this feeling that there is something lacking. And for all his religious fervour, for all his religious observance, there's something more and there's something important that he's forgotten. And that's the story today. He goes and he asks somebody. He asks Jesus what he lacks. But the answer that he gets is not what he wanted. And that's our story today. So if you now, um, thanks so much for Kate for that uh, awesome reading. If you want to open up Matthew chapter 19 now, we're going to have a look at it. And just so you know where I'm going, if there's one kind of message I think this passage has to say to me, and I think perhaps to some of you here, I suspect many of us here actually, it's this. If there's one thing you write down, if you're writing down person, here it is. Jesus wants you to follow him. Jesus wants you to follow him, and what's more, he thinks he's worth dropping everything for to follow. Jesus wants you to follow him, and he thinks he's worth dropping everything to follow. Well, there's kind of three, uh, well, there's kind of two kind of sections of this story. The first is uh, when the young man comes up, a rich man, and has a genuine question, I think, a genuine question. But the second, the flip side of that is, when he's confronted with Jesus' response, he gives a telling refusal. His refusal to do what Jesus says says a lot about him. So we'll start with the genuine question he comes up. Uh, Matthew chapter 19, verse 18. Just then someone came up and asked him, Teacher, what good must I do to have eternal life? In Mark's Gospel, it actually says that he came running up. You can imagine the scene, if you've ever kind of been hesitating whether to go and ask someone an important question, just as they're leaving, you go for it. And so I think this man is genuine. This young man genuinely needs an answer to this question. And so he comes up and he asks, what must I do to have eternal life, to enter the kingdom of God, to stand right before God on that final day? And Jesus has a little bit of a kind of interaction with him. Why do you ask me about what is good, he said to him. There is only one who is good. Now, Jesus, for a couple of chapters now, has been explaining uh, the law, the Torah, the the Old Testament law, as he interprets it, not as the Pharisees interpret him, as as we saw last week. 
And so for, uh, to speak about kind of a good thing, it, it kind of is already signalling that there's a problem here in the guy's understanding. But he goes on, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Well, which ones? He asked him. Right? Because he senses there's something missing. And Jesus answers, uh, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honour your father and your mother and love your neighbour as yourself. Now, it's interesting, that list. Now, it's kind of the Ten Commandments, but it's only really half the Ten Commandments. I don't know how much to make of this, but it's the half of the Ten Commandments which you can see someone do. Right? It's the outward things. There's a whole half of the Ten Commandments that is about you and God and where your heart is with God, and your worship of God. Also interesting, and again, I don't know how much to make of this, he misses out one, the the coveting one. Interesting, isn't it? But anyway, the the young man takes this as being representative of the whole of the Old Testament. I think that's kind of Jesus' main point. And he says this kind of remarkable statement. I have kept all these, the young man told him. What do I still lack? And in, in some senses, that's an extraordinary thing to claim, isn't it? That he has kept all the law of God perfectly and perfectly as Jesus has interpreted it, such that to not murder means not even to be angry with a brother. Can this guy really claim that he's never been angry with a brother? Really? I'd love to meet this guy. But in fairness to him, this man seems to think that he still lacks something, doesn't he? He doesn't seem to be buying his own PR, right? And that's why he's talking to Jesus. For all his perfect observance of the Old Testament law, he still feels like he lacks something. And so he says, what what do I still lack? And I think he's genuinely got a question here. His problem is, and I, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but lying, I imagine him lying awake at night, wondering if, if the next morning doesn't come, if I don't wake up tonight, if I stand before my maker, will I be okay? If I have to give an account for everything I've done in my life, will I be okay? Will I be acceptable before God? And I think his gut says that he's not. And so Jesus tells him what he lacks and he doesn't want to hear it. It's hard. So we have a genuine question. Now I think verse 21 we have this challenge. If you want to be perfect, Jesus said to him, go, sell your belongings and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And this is the heartbreaking part of the story. When the young man heard that command, he went away grieving because he had many possessions. I think there's a a practical and a spiritual barrier for this poor young man. And I do, I have a lot of sympathy for him. I think maybe some of us feel in the same situation as him. We need to hear Jesus' words here. See, the, the practical problem... He didn't have all his money in some kind of superannuation account managed fund kind of thing, right? He's not got shares on the NASDAQ. He's actually got property. His wealth is 
something has to actively serve to maintain fields that need to be harvested and houses that need to be looked after and servants that need to be... His wealth actually requires him to stay put here and look after it. But Jesus is saying, come, follow me. And that's a practical barrier. But you know what? I think Jesus diagnoses a further spiritual barrier for this young man coming and following him here. And it's not just this young man. In fact, it's all who are rich. And I think we do well to listen to this because we are rich. Jesus said to his disciples, I assure you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. There's a great spiritual danger in being a wealthy person. A great spiritual danger. You see, the Bible talks about idolatry, the worship of other gods apart from God, as breaking the very first commandment. If you don't get the first commandment right, the rest of the commandments mean nothing if you're not worshipping God alone. And yet the Bible says that our greed can be idolatry. We can set money up instead of God as our God. And it's, here's how you tell what, what your idol is if you have an idol. Here's what, how you tell who you're really serving in your life. Who is the one person, what is the one thing that you cannot say no to? And when it comes down to a choice between the last two things that are important in your life, what is the last thing that you say no to? Who can't you refuse? What won't you give up? And whatever your answer to that question is, if it's not God, then that's your idol. And so Jesus gives him that exact diagnostic question, except makes him choose. Your money or your God? Who can't you say no to? And the terrifying answer is, he can't say no to his money. But you see, this causes a lot of confusion for the disciples because this man, this rich man, was very, very religious, practising religious Someone you look up to, someone you tell your kids to model themselves on. Someone who genuinely, I believe, uh, if if I'm reading this story right, genuinely uh, served and loved God in the temple as he was required, genuinely gave money to the poor, genuinely did acts of righteousness, genuinely practised his religion, and yet if he can't get into heaven, what hope do we have? We're talking about a bunch of fishermen who don't put themselves up as being anywhere near as holy as this guy, and yet Jesus has just totally told this guy that he has to choose and he can't choose. If that guy can't make it into heaven, what hope do we have? And that's exactly the the question his disciples asked. My question when I first read this passage, which terrified me, when the disciples heard this, they were utterly astonished. And they asked, who then can be saved? Who? If this religious young man, this upstanding young man, can't, who can? And here's the good news. Jesus looked at them and said, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Verse 30, at the end of this section, 
Jesus says one of these enigmatic little phrases he loves to use. Many who are first will be last and the last first. You see, Jesus knows that religion will not work for this guy. He can't just do more stuff. And so he calls this guy to follow him. And that's why I think there's this great reversal. These fishermen, this motley crew of disciples who are following Jesus are entering the kingdom ahead of this man who is in all outward senses far more religious and far more upright. And that's why Jesus calls us to follow him. And that's why Jesus thinks that it's profoundly worth it. Here's the, here's the biggest thing. Here's, here's the biggest thing about this passage that I think strikes me. Jesus is utterly unapologetic, isn't he? About asking this man to give up everything. He doesn't even kind of look, here's reasons why. No, he just says it. He doesn't kind of apologise for asking such a big thing from him. He just says it as if it's the most natural thing in the world. That if you truly understood who Jesus is, you'd have no trouble obeying this command to give up everything and follow him. What is it I, I want? What is it about following Jesus which is worth so much that you'd be foolish not to leave everything behind? What is this treasure of such a great price that you would sell everything in order to receive it? I was reading this morning uh, the writings of a man called Umar, who was um, the second, if I'm getting this right, alif after uh, Muhammad died, the, the Islamic prophet Muhammad, uh, there was um, uh, Abu Bakr and then there was this man, Umar, who was a companion of the Islamic prophet Muhammad for many years and who was actually assassinated later uh, in, in the history um, and he said this, and I think it's, it's profoundly insightful and I think actually answers something of the question of what is so precious about following Jesus. And so I'll, I'll read this, um, this tradition about what Umar said on his deathbed because I think it's right at the heart of this. Umar said, I am none other than as a drowning man who sees possibility of escape with life and hope for it, but fears that he may die and lose it, and so plunge about with hands and feet. More desperate than the drowning man is he who at the sight of heaven and hell is buried in the vision. Had I the whole east and west, this is, this is the crucial bit, had I the whole east and west, gladly would I give up all to be delivered from this awful terror, that is hanging over me. Do you see what Umar wants? And why he would give up everything for it? It's to know that when he meets his maker, he'll be alright. To know with certainty that he is saved. That's the scandal of the gospel. That's the outrageousness of the gospel. That Jesus says... Follow me and watch me do it all for you. When we follow Jesus, what do you think we're doing? What do you think we do? What do you think these disciples end up doing as they follow Jesus? Are they there to, to pray with him? No, they're asleep while he prays. Are they following him to stand with him bravely in the Sanhedrin? No, no. 
They've run away. Are they going to atone for their sins by good works and by sacrifice? No. They're not even there. They're coming to watch him die for them. That is the call of the gospel. Jesus says, come and follow me and watch me die for you. And that's why it's so precious. Romans 5.6 says this, For while we were still helpless, at the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly. This is why it's worth following Jesus and it's worth leaving everything for. You see, we are disobedient. Jesus is obedient even to the point of death. We cannot even pray enough. We struggle to pray and yet Jesus prays for us. We ruin our worship by our religious hypocrisy and yet Jesus becomes for us our temple, our priest and our sacrifice. All all we do is watch him. This is religion on its head. When God comes and he worships for us. See why that is so precious and why Jesus wants you to come and to follow him. With us, salvation is impossible. But with Jesus, salvation is not just possible. But get this, it's done. It's not just possible. It's completed. It's finished. And that's why it's worth leaving everything to come and follow Jesus. Friends, are you struggling under the weight of carrying the burden of your own sin? Then come follow Jesus and believe that when you do that, Jesus truly carries your burden and your sin he takes on himself. Do you believe when he says he's done that, that he actually takes your case on himself and it's your sin that he's dying for? Are you trying to seek God? Well, then come and follow Jesus and watch him prove that he is God Almighty himself by what he says, by the way he commands the elements, by the way he forgives sins and ultimately is victorious over death itself. Come and watch him do that for you. Have you been abused by religious hypocrisy? Have you been abused by religious hypocrisy? Then come and follow the one who alone, unlike every other person who's ever lived, is without any hint of hypocrisy, who is true and good and right and just. Are you fearful of meeting your maker? Friends, come and follow Jesus so that when you stand before the throne of God Almighty and you meet your maker, you can say confidently, you've already met. Jesus wants you to come and follow him. And what's more, he knows it's worth it, whatever the cost. Um, 
I just want to say firstly, um, on behalf of us, um, thanks so much for coming and sharing with us. So nice. maybe you'd like to give any a big hand. <laughs> Um, I've had a few questions sent in, and if you've got questions now, feel free to send them to the number on the screen here. Um, yeah, it's mine. Um, <laughs> don't abuse that. Um, Maybe stop all, sending. After yeah, after this, after this hour, that would be great. Um, basically, uh, the first question I've got for you, Andy, is um, someone's raised the point that uh, when Jesus says, if you want to enter life, obey the commandments, it sounds like he's saying that uh, by following the commandments, we can be saved. Um, do you want to address that, and what, w- what would we make of that? Um, the only person ever to obey the commandments was Jesus. He's the only person who's ever offered perfect obedience, and he's the only person who's ever uh, stood righteous in his own merit before God. And because when you read through the Gospel of Matthew before that point, the way he interprets the commandments, which he is who he says he is, he has authority to interpret that way, uh, you see that really it's, it's, it's very hard. It's very hard. Uh, not that God has put something impossible before us, but because we really don't want, I think in our hearts, to love God in the way that he ought to be loved. And so, in fact, I, I don't think anybody, uh, I think in fact the Bible teaches very clearly that nobody has ever obeyed the commandments perfectly. Uh, ever since Adam and Eve, we've all been uh, unable to, not because they were too hard, but because of our own heart. We actually don't want to when it comes down to it. It's bleak, but it's, I think, what the Bible teaches. Sure. Um, and the uh, n- next question that we have is someone says, thanks heaps uh, for your talk. <laughs> My pleasure. Um, and uh, uh, could you elaborate on what you mean by watching Jesus? Yeah. Um, so something that's occurred to me, when, when the disciples follow Jesus, at every crucial moment, he's doing the doing. Right? He's the one that prays in the Garden of Gethsemane while they're asleep. He's the one that stands before the Sanhedrin on his own. And he's the one that's crucified while they're nowhere to be seen, except the women who are a bit more brave than the men. And they watched. Right? At every point, it's his obedience And if you believe, as the Bible teaches, that he did that obedience for you, he fulfilled the law for you, he died for you, then it's wonderful to watch because he's actually obeying on your behalf. And if you follow him, you become justified before God, right before God, ready and fit to receive the kingdom, not because of your obedience, but because of Jesus' obedience. And that's incredible to watch uh, and come along on that journey with. Does that kind of, maybe? I don't know. That's not satisfactory. As with all these ones, big questions, important questions, short and kind of annoying answers, we can talk after. Um, Yeah. Definitely. I'll I'll just reiterate that. We're having an afternoon tea um, just out in the courtyard next door. So you're all welcome to come and um, chat with Andy about that or anyone wearing a shirt. Um, would happily talk to you about these things. <laughs> Particularly green shirt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. That's, that's a factor there. I mean, hey, ask someone in a shirt. Um, another question. They don't ask anyone who doesn't have a shirt on. Yeah, that's, that'd be awkward. Try that. It's not good. Um, hey, Andy, um, is, hey. It, uh, is God egocentric and arrogant uh, 
to call us to follow and love him? Um, it's funny. We, we have this, I think, some beautiful things about our um, culture in that we rightly are suspicious of most authority um, and we rightly think that people who kind of put tickets on themselves over and above what they deserve are somehow to be distrusted, right, are arrogant. Um, the problem is actually God is God and when we say that God's being arrogant to be wanted to be treated as God, we're actually just putting ourselves in his place and we're actually, I think, uh, with all due respect, being arrogant. Um, he wants to be acknowledged as who he is, as the creator, as his right. Uh, that's not having tickets on himself. That's just who he is. Um, so, no, I actually don't think it's arrogant. Cool. Uh, another question um, from the floor is, uh, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Yeah, really good question. Um, he just says it, doesn't he? And people don't always know what they're in for, um, except that they know it's going to be worth it. Um, to be a Christian is to trust in Jesus, I think, that he has done everything for you, that it's his obedience, his death, his sacrifice, uh, which is relevant in your case, and to stand before God, therefore, trusting in him. But the natural, the natural outflowing of that is that we start trying to live like him. Out of our joy and out of our love, that changes things. And to have faith in Jesus, to trust Jesus, obviously, well, when he says something is foolish, believe that he loves us and he's much smarter than us, then it makes sense to do what he says. Um, We have to be very careful not to make that sound like it's an extra thing you have to do before God will accept you. And we have to be careful when you read this passage um, that we don't uh, minimise the command to this man to sell all this stuff because I think that actually does, this is a whole discussion another day, I think that actually does apply to us. But careful not to think that what he's saying to this man is, oh, you just missed one of the other commandments you need to do to justify yourself. You've done nine out of ten. Here's the tenth one. Go do it and you'll be fine. No, 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 no. Uh, next couple of chapters, a tax collector followed Jesus. And then in joy after that, spontaneously, overflowing with love, passes through the eye of a needle right? and sells this stuff and gives it to the But that's after he started following Jesus. And it's out of love and his gratitude and his thankfulness and the transformation of the Holy Spirit in his life, which happens. That's a good question. I think maybe there's more to say, but we can talk after. Definitely. You would like? Uh, the next question is, how do you draw the line between being rich and being comfortable? Is it spiritually dangerous to be financially comfortable? Yes, very. Uh, and this is something I'm not going to give anywhere near enough time, to, um, but we are in grave spiritual danger here because of that. Because it tends to think that uh, we control the world when you're rich. It tempts us uh, to rely on our riches not in God and it has a hold on us. And I think the best thing to do to resist that is to practice rejecting money's hold on you by giving it away as often and as freely as you can and with as much joy as you can. Uh, Yeah, the Bible has many other things to say on wealth. Um, One is this, and I think this is the clearest command to those who are rich and we are rich in this this room just by living in this country really. 
Command those, says Paul, who are rich in this age to be generous in good deeds and to share with others. Um, So if you have a house, consider that held on trust for God and for the church. If you're a Christian person, share that house. Uh, You might not actually sell it, but share it. Um, Yeah, I can say more, but I won't. Cool. Um, probably the last question. Oh, no, we'll see how much, how long it takes you to answer this one. Okay. Um, I think it's kind of big. I'll be... Oh, no, I think it's just a really big question. That's all, so you might want to elaborate. Um, the question itself is, how uh, can our human minds ever really understand grace? Um, and obviously, like, I'd just kind of like to add a little, hey, what's grace kind of question to that as well, just in case that's kind of lingo. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Grace is not just a very, very nice name for a girl or a dog. Um, It's... Actually, that's not true. I don't know any girls for... Um, Sorry, that was unkind. Um, Is there anyone here called Grace? Okay, sorry. We'll talk after for other... uh, um, No, it's a beautiful, beautiful name because it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, Grace just is simply gift, right? It's just gift, right? So when you give something to someone, and it's not you know, something that already belongs to them or something that you're contractually obligated to give to somebody, that's a gift, right? It comes from your love for that person. Um, it comes from your flowing of generosity. And the Bible says that many things God gives us are a gift, not a wage like we earn it, but a gift. And the fundamentally crazy thing which the Bible teaches is that our righteousness, I'll explain it in a second, our righteousness with God, our rightness with God, is a gift. Right? Our standing before God is by grace, which means it is a gift. Not something we work for, not something that we earn because we can't, but something that we receive as a gift. Paul says you don't work for a gift. Right? That would be a wage. But also you don't pay back a gift. Right? That's a mortgage. Right? God doesn't mortgage us salvation. Right? So we have to pay it back in good deeds. No, he gives us salvation and righteousness. And it's not the kind of thing that if we receive the gift but then don't act in a certain way, it's taken away from us. Right? Like we have to maintain it by our good works. That's kind of like a loan shark approach to gift. Right? Like they give you a gift but if you don't make the repayments, they chop your feet off. God is not like that. <laughs> right? So that's what grace means. And can we understand to be thankful for that. Really thankful. If you follow Jesus, then you will receive the gift of God, eternal life, rightness with him, salvation. I understand enough of that to be really thankful. Really thankful. And I wonder, just before we finish, I wonder whether the reason why some of you are here today is because God actually wants to offer you that for the first time. 